The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Museum Life with Carol Bossert. Museums are important whether we work in them, for them, or simply love visiting them. Throughout history, people have collected things and put them on display to enjoy. But today's museums offer much more than rooms filled with stuff. They provide places to learn and share experiences with family and friends, as well as sanctuaries to unplug, rest, and refresh. On today's show, we'll discuss how museums can remain relevant and sustainable, reach out to new audiences, and remain attuned to cultural and technological trends. Now, here's your host, Carol Bossert. Good morning. This is Carol Bossert. Thank you for tuning in today. For today's program, we're going to be talking about museums as healers or as healing places. We know uh, from unfortunate and recent experiences, such as uh, after 9-11, that many people in New York and Washington, uh, in fact around the country, who were uh, looking for a a safe place or a place to collect their thoughts, uh, begin to grieve, uh, turned to museums and galleries and other cultural institutions as a place to find that that solace and that that space to re, uh, reflect and uh, hopefully refresh. Well, recently uh, we've had many other we've had many other tragedies, and we have just uh, uh, marked in April the first anniversary of the Boston Marathon bombing. So we have as our guest today Rainy Tisdale, uh, who was the. Uh, Curator, I think is the best word to use for the hashtag Boston Better project. And I'm going to let Rainey talk a little bit more in a minute about what that project was about. Uh, but before I do, let me uh, introduce to those of you um, who, uh, who Rainey is. Now, actually, I'll say that Rainey was supposed to be on this show about six weeks ago when I interviewed her co-author, Linda Norris, on um, actually April 4th. both Rainey and Linda wrote uh, Creativity in Museum Practice, which is a Left Coast Press publication. I would encourage all of you to, uh, uh, to get a copy of this book. It really has some very interesting insights into museum practice. But, of course, Rainey was really busy because this was on April 4th and her exhibition opened just a couple of, uh, of days later. So I'm pleased that Rainey has an opportunity to be on the show today. She's based in Boston. She's an independent curator who specializes in city museums and local history. She spent more more than a decade working for the Bostonian Society. And in 2010, she was a Fulbright Scholar in Helsinki, Finland. And in 2011, she was a community fellow at Brown University Center for Public Humanities. Uh, 
Rainey, welcome to the show today. Thanks, Carol. Thanks for having me. Rainey, could you uh, please ground all of us a little bit in the, um, there were a lot of moving parts in this hashtag Boston Better project. Could you just you know, give us a, a brief overview of, of what the project uh, was about and so we have some context for our discussion today? Sure, Carol. So, um, you know, just to refresh everybody's memory, the Boston Marathon bombing happened on April 15th of 2013. And in the weeks after the bombing, there were lots of discussions amongst colleagues all over the city about how we were going to respond to this um, event. And what that turned into was a very loose collaboration amongst 26 cultural institutions, museums, libraries, archives, to provide programming for the one-year anniversary and to, you know, work around issues of making sure that this story was collected and interpreted and that there was support for um, our public audiences, for our community in dealing with the bombing and helping make meaning around it. And um, we ended up with this name for the project, Hashtag Boston Better. It's a play on Hashtag Boston Strong, which was this very um, wide-spreading meme in the, you know, in the f- first few days after the bombing and is still used regularly today. Um, and so, uh, you know, we had started out <laughs> with this very complicated, like, uh, <laughs> museums, libraries, and archives, you know, responding to the Boston Marathon bombing, which was such a mouthful, and we sort of needed a, um, a, a quicker and easier, um, you know, name for us for what we were doing, and and this concept of Boston Better really has two connotations. The first is that is about getting better and feeling better. It's about healing and healing individually, and also healing as a city. And then the second connotation is about. Um, being your best self, rising to your best self, and how do you how do you do that? Um, both again individually and collectively as a city. How can we take this um, this really sad thing that happened and use it as an opportunity to talk about how we want to move forward as a city? And so, um, you know, all of these cultural institutions planned programming for the one year anniversary uh, all over the Boston area. And, you know, sometimes it was concerts, uh, panel discussions, art-making projects, um, share-your-story opportunities, uh, exhibitions, a a whole host of different kinds of of programming with this idea that there's no one-size-fits-all in terms of how our community and how each individual in our community needed to deal with the emotions and the memories and the, um, you know, process the bombing. And so we were trying to provide a buffet, you know, a buffet of options, and each person can choose what feels right for them in terms of participating. Well, that's quite an undertaking uh, to bring all of those cultural institutions together, uh, and of course, you were were the catalyst for that. Uh, did you also have uh, a, another organizing uh, um, uh, or host um, institution that that uh, could take the lead on this? Yeah, you know, I felt really fortunate that early on, you know, as in just a few days after the bombing. Um, In fact, I think actually when we were all in lockdown, 
um, the New England Museum Association um, stepped up to the plate and said, this is something that we care about that's affecting many of our member institutions, and... Um, and, you know, we feel like we have a role to play. And, and I should say, you know, Boston's a very strange place to, to, um, to deal with, uh, uh, well, you know, in some sense, every place is a strange place to deal with a tragedy like this. But because there's so much emphasis on the American Revolution um, for Boston's cultural institutions, there really isn't an institution in the city with a mandate to, um, to collect or interpret contemporary Boston history. And so it meant that there wasn't a clear leading institution that would step in and really own this story and would be, you know, sort of at the center of it. And so um, in that leadership vacuum, you know, uh, sort of uh, I was agitating for it, and then um, NEMA felt like they had a role to play as a convener to bring many institutions to the table um, to talk about what should be done and to see if we could do some um, some collaborating to um, to share the work for it. And and so, and I just, you know, uh, uh, NEMA has a small staff, but, you know, Dan Yeager and B.J. Larson on their team, um, you know, spent so many hours throughout the last year going around the city um, trying to bring people to the table, stakeholders to the table, funding to the table, and never gave up on this, um, even when it got really hard and frustrating. So um, they, you know, ended up being the lead partner and, you know, also my sort of sponsoring agent since I'm an independent and sort of needed, a, you know, a nonprofit sponsor. Right, a home, uh, a home base to work, right, work right. from. Um, so, so, but that's not all you did. Um, you also were uh, uh, the lead curator and, um, uh, on, on an exhibition, on a special exhibition called Dear Boston. Now, how did that fit in? Right. So, you, you know, if you, you think about that buffet of options that we were trying to provide across the Boston area, um, you can see this exhibition as the, you know, the main course or the centerpiece in the buffet. And um, so, yes, an exhibition called Dear Boston, Messages from the Marathon Memorial. And our host was the Boston Public Library's main branch at Copley Square, which is, you know, one of the most important civic buildings in the city and um, and is also in the same block as the finish line for the marathon. And so um, this exhibition was a curated selection of artifacts from the makeshift memorial that grew up in Copley Square in the weeks after the bombing. And um, it was a very fast-track project all along from the beginning. Last April, we had hoped to do... Um, a major exhibition because we felt like we really the city needed a space to come together and reflect deeply on on the event and what it meant and um, it was quite difficult um, getting you know sort of stakeholders and approvals and funding in place so we didn't get the green light until uh, the beginning of February so we did in two months what really should have taken us a year to pull off this major exhibition. But, yeah, I think throughout the hour we'll probably, in our conversation, Carol, move back and forth between the larger project, Boston Better, on one hand, and then this um, key, you know, uh, exhibition, Dear Boston, at the Boston Public Library that was sort of at the center of it, yeah. 
I, I think you're right. So, um, but can one of the now the Dear Boston project? Uh, or, I'm sorry, the Dear Boston exhibit. See, I'm I'm also trying to find my way in this. Uh, the Dear Boston exhibit was only open for the few weeks, sort of leading up and right after the marathon. Correct. It was a temporary exhibition. Correct. Um, it opened on uh, April seventh, the week before the anniversary, and it closed on. Um, May 11th, we just actually took it all, deinstalled it two weeks ago, and um, and yeah, you know, it was temporary for for a very short run, and you know, there were some logistical reasons for that in terms of the you know Boston Public Library's need for the gallery because of course you know this all happened so quickly they you know they had a gallery schedule set you know years in advance. Um, but then also, I mean, it really felt we could tell, and you know, because we'd sort of been listening to the city for the you know the past year, that there was going to be a lot of intensity during the month of April, and then it was really going to settle back down as people just you know most people had a need to go back to some sense of normalcy and to turn the corner and look towards the future and not, you know, really get stuck on the bombing, um, you know, for so long that it, um, you know, it weighed us down. And, you know, obviously, of course, there are many survivors and people who were close to the event that day for whom they can't set it down and go back to some sense of normalcy. That doesn't exist. But um, for our primary audience, which was, you know, Bostonians across the city, um, those folks, you know, needed to spend an intense month of mourning and then be able to um, put, you know, put themselves planted forward, going forward. Right. In, interesting. Um, and and I think that, and we'll come back to this as well, but, but it is true, you know, we've all heard about the the process of, of grief and mourning and, and, you know, moving through a variety of emotions until we, we can come to some resolution and live uh, with ourselves and live in a world that, that is not as safe as we had hoped. So it sounds as if part of this Dear Boston project was to help people move from you know, wherever they were to possibly the next stage. Absolutely, and that was a conscious effort. And you know, one of my big reasons personally for participating in this is that I was really concerned we would get to the one-year anniversary, and the um, you know, I don't I don't want to be um, too denigrating here because there's a lot of important work they do, but that the local television news stations would, you know, own this story and um, there would be this intensity of emotion that would sort of come out across the city, but that that would just, you know, be left hanging in the air with no productive outlet um, and no way to help individuals process it or make some meaning from it um, because those local TV news hits that are so quick and um, and so I think, you know, for me, one of the big goals was deeper engagement and deeper meaning making. And, um, and how, do you, how do you confront that emotion, not deny it and not ignore it, but confront that emotion, but then, yes, move out the other side of it in some productive way. And also move out the other side of it together, not, 
each, you know, each of us fragmented in our own worlds, but as a community moving forward. Yes, and I, if you hadn't brought up that word community, I, I was going to because I think that's certainly a theme that, that we talk about on the show and amongst ourselves as museum professionals about the importance of museums being part of their community, but also being a place where people can create the community and, and the antithesis of sitting in your home alone or with just your nuclear family listening to a news report uh, versus physically going to a place that has a sense of place where you can see that others, too, are are experiencing some of the same things that, that, that you are. I think that's, that's very important. Uh, we are almost uh, up on our break time, um, so I'm, uh, but I want to ask you one quick question, Rainey, before we break, and that was uh, something that you had shared with me to give our visitors some con- or our listeners some context. What was the response from visitors? I know you quoted some um, uh, visitation numbers for me that seemed amazing. Sure. So it's still too early. We haven't had a chance to compile our aggregate numbers for Boston better for this large project across the city with many institutions. So we need to still compile those numbers from each of our partners. But for the Dear Boston exhibition at the library, I can tell you that we had 52,000 visitors uh, during a 34-day run of the exhibition. And just to give you some further context for that, normally in that gallery space at the library, if they had a good show, um, they'd get something like 4,500 visitors a week in that space. And meanwhile, our um, Dear Boston exhibition was seeing um, anywhere from 10,000 to 12,000 visitors a week. So that's you know more than double the previous benchmark for that um, gallery space. And I will also say that it was a very diverse crowd. You know, I spent a lot of time down there because I was doing so many press interviews, and it was diverse racially, it was diverse by class, by age. Part of that is because the library's audience in general is diverse, but I was um, really just so heartened to see that people from all walks of life in Boston were interested enough and compelled enough to go spend time in that space once they, you know, made their way to the library. So um, so I think, you know, definitely this struck a chord with our community. They, you know, we're obviously, 50, <laughs> there are some ways in which 52,000 is just a drop, drop in the bucket for our greater metropolitan area, but nonetheless, you know, for museums, that's, you know, those are pretty strong numbers. Yes, yes, uh, very, very important. Uh, Thank you. Uh, I am excited to continue this conversation with Rainey and about uh, some of the broader uh, both lessons learned and and concepts what this uh, can tell us about museums. But right now we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back. Uh, You're listening to The Museum Life with Carol Bossert. Remember, you can always drop me a line at carol.bossert at verizon.net. Tell me what you think about the show and what topics we should be covering. Uh, We'll be back in a moment. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. 
Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog, Press Pass? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at VAPressPass.com. That's VAPressPass.com. VA Press Pass by Voice America. All access, all the time. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to carol.bosser at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Welcome back. This is Carol Bossert. Uh, you're listening to Museum Life. And I'm here with Rainy Tisdale. Uh, and right before break, Rainy was giving us some of the particulars about the hashtag Boston Better project and specifically the Dear Boston exhibit that was part of uh, the city's uh, cultural institution's uh, uh, way of uh, showcase, well, um, focusing and memorializing the um, Boston Marathon uh, bombing that happened a uh, year ago in April. So, Rainey, um, I know that uh, Gretchen Jennings, who has also been on this show uh, at talking about her concept of the empathetic museum, uh, ran a, a wonderful article on her uh, discussion on her blog, Museum Commons, about uh, uh, this project and um, uh, the challenges of focusing uh, uh, museums focusing on any kind of uh, significant tragedy. Certainly, in a in a historic sense, there you know, may, really hasn't been enough time uh, for us to process all of this. But uh, I wanted. Uh, if you would would uh, be able to comment a little bit about the project in terms of this uh, concept of of uh, empathetic museums, yeah, sure. Um, definitely, throughout this past year, I've been thinking so much about Gretchen's work um, and what an empathetic museum means. And you know, and, and the way that I see it is that um, you know. It's been very easy for many years for museums to sort of consider that each visitor is like every other visitor and that each day when they're coming through our doors, they're like blank slates almost. Um, no one day is any different from any other. And I think um, on one hand, empathetic museums are about understanding just some basic um, 
human being to human being issues about being welcoming and understanding the ways our spaces might be intimidating or that people might need extra care, that not everyone um, is as able-bodied, um, you know, needs help or um, needs, you know, um, just a deeper level of understanding. So, so you know, there's that whole cluster of issues. But then the, the piece that really comes into play with the project I've been working on is about this idea that um, – Every day our communities are going through issues that they care about and concern them. And sometimes that could be, as you know, something like a local election or there's some big local story in the news that's got everybody a little bit, you know, sort of worked up. Um, but then also there are things that happen like hurricanes and floods and bombings and shootings. And, um, and those are times where our communities intensely are dealing with something um, that's really, you know, affecting their lives in a deep way. And so if we just act like, <laughs> you know, those days are the same as any other day, then we're doing a disservice to our communities. And so this idea of um, really being available and supportive to your community when something like this happens and understanding that they need you. They need you to be a safe public space. Um, they need you to help them process and make meaning. And um, that there are some very real um, services um, that museums and libraries as community anchors can provide in a way that other um, parts of the city can't. And so, you know, so... Certainly throughout this year, I've been thinking about, you know, in what ways um, were, were Boston's institutions empathetic and in what ways did they really, you know, sort of fall down on the job and, and, and need to have, you know, done better or how can we do it better next time, you know, kind of thing. Interesting. Um, I want to go back to, to what you were saying that, you know, uh, it is um, unfortunate uh, uh, statement of the times that many more cities than certainly in in my um, my earlier life are dealing with not only um, uh, environmental disasters. I'm thinking of all of the cities that were impacted by Hurricane Sandy, uh, and but there have been other issues as well, um, as you say, serious um, uh, shootings or uh, other, other acts of terrorism uh, in, in our country. And uh, you've talked a little bit uh, in some of your writings about museums needing a disaster plan. And I'm thinking you mean more than a disaster plan that protects the artifacts. Right. You know, I, I think, you know, we've gotten reasonably good at disaster planning for our buildings and for our collections, for protecting the museum's assets, right? And don't get me wrong, that's extremely important work, but I don't think that we've gotten to the point as a field where we're, reali you know, realizing and understanding that we need to do disaster planning for our communities as well, 
that that needs to also be on the table for discussion. And, um, and that's something that has just really, you know, I've gotten so much clarity on this year from this work because, you know, certainly there were some institutions in Boston that opened their doors that, uh, that week of the bombing for free to say, come here, you know, we can be a place for you. But many institutions um, didn't know what to do and um, therefore just did nothing and treated the days after the bombing like any other day um, in their institutional space. And, and, and so, you know, I, I think what, from what I can tell of the situation, it, it, it's this thing where if there is someone in a decision-making capacity who instinctually says we need to do something for our community, then individual institutions can make some sort of decision on the spot that is empathetic and supportive. But in many cases, if they're if that person isn't in place who wants to sort of like uh, on the spur of the moment change course to address whatever's happened, then instead the default setting is to just go back to business as usual. And, you know, and it's, it's hard for these institutions. I, I don't fault them because, you know, we all know so many of our museums are operating close to the bone. We've been under these tough economic times for so long. They have very long to-do lists, work plans, and small operating budgets, so they're doing the best they can. But you know, it's in these you know these kinds of events like the marathon bombing blindside you, right? You're, you come out of nowhere. You're not you're not planning for them, and so um, turning on a dime quickly to address what your community needs is really tough in that situation. So instead, I think if there are some conversations had in staff meetings on normal days, on easy days, as part of a disaster planning effort to say, okay, once we've assessed that our building is secure and that our collections are secure and that there's no imminent threat to us, you know, we're outside of the zone of trouble or, you know, it depends on the, it depends on the, the crisis, what's going on. But once we've, we've, we've determined that our institution is okay, our immediate next job is to turn to our community and figure out what we can do, easy ways, open our door, um, you know, give people a space to talk, um, to just see beautiful stuff, if that's what it takes. Maybe sometimes, maybe you're close to the scene, open your door for bathrooms and for water and for cell phone charging. Sometimes that's important. Um, but that if if there's no policy in place that those decisions and that plan have been set beforehand, it's too easy for the default setting to be we do nothing. Right. Well, and I and the other important point, and as you were talking, I was remembering something that Karma Fauntleroy told me uh, soon after uh, Hurricane Katrina, uh, and she was the acting director of the uh, uh, State Museum uh, in Louisiana. And that is that we forget uh, that the people who are working in the museum are also affected. So that sometimes the um, the what I would call the the um, just stasis, the 
inability to move is also because those people uh, who should be making the decisions in the in our cultural institutions have also been emotionally affected. So that if there is a plan in place that you can pull out and say, well, I can't remember anything, but six months ago or a year ago when I when things were calm, here were the five things that I could do. Absolutely. I think that that's correct, and we certainly saw that. And certainly, you know, the Boston Public Library, which is one of our most important cultural institutions, was right there in the finish line block. They were closed for a week because um, of the bombing, and certainly, you know, it felt like it it happened in their home, right? And um, other institutions like that that you know f- felt direct, and of course, all of us were Bostonians. We were we were grieving for our city, regardless of where where your institution was in the city. Um, so that's very true. I think we need to understand, um, you know, and I've written about this on my blog that um, you know museums are not first responders when disasters happen, but we are not just average citizens either. We are part of, I don't know, the second or the third or the fourth wave with, as public servants who have a role to play for our communities. And so, um, you know, so somewhere in there is a responsibility that, that, you know, is our job. Um, and, um, you know, and certainly, um, we felt that all along the folks who are participating in this Boston Better effort. Um, you know, we were Bostonians, part of the same audience that we were doing our programming for, and there were times when that made it really hard to do the work, but also times when it made it really meaningful to do the work. Um, That's, you know, that actually leads into uh, another question that I had, and sort of switching gears a little bit, but in the same vein. I mean, what you were dealing with, both the subject matter and the community in which you were you were were working, and and yourselves, as you've said, was emotionally charged. And I'm there aren't a whole lot of museum exhibits that I'm you know thinking thinking about that handle this kind of emotion, really raw emotion, well. So, what? How? How did you consciously handle this, or did you? Yeah. So you know, it, all along it was clear how emotional this was going to be, right? And it was clear that. Our community was going to experience this emotion, whether we helped them with it or not. Right. So you know, we could we had a choice. We could either leave them, you know, hanging to work it out on their own, or we could go there right in the middle of it with them and help them through it. And you know, one of the metaphors I've been using is. You know, if you think about your experiences of funerals that you've participated in over your lifetime, and, you know, I certainly feel like there are two kinds of funerals. There's the one kind, which is it feels like you're just going through the motions and all of the rituals leave you cold, and you feel like you are very alone in in that funeral space, even if there are other people there. And when you leave, you don't feel resolved at all about the the loss of this person. And then there's a second kind of funeral where 
the rituals are really meaningful and maybe the eulogy is spot on and it's not, um, it doesn't feel like a cookie cutter eulogy. It feels like it really embodies that person and it feels like there's an energy in the room that everyone is mourning together. And when you leave, it's not that you suddenly are happy and that it's all okay. It's just that you've gotten the strength and that you're buoyed for the road ahead, right? And you leave feeling catharsis. I would even use that word catharsis. Um, And, you know, it's because there's been enough meaning and ritual um, and enough um, community spirit to that second kind of funeral to help you through it. And so I think there are ways in which what we were trying to create was a civic, secular version of that second kind of funeral writ large across the entire city so that we're not avoiding the emotion and you still cry just as much with the second kind of funeral, the you know, the meaningful kind of funeral, but you feel some sort of catharsis and some ability to turn a corner at the end of it. And um, so, you know, so how do you as a cultural institution um, deal with that emotion help your community process it, help them turn the corner. That's a very interesting analogy, and it reminds me of, of uh, you know, some of the, the, the uh, contemporary writings about uh, psychology and sociology that, that, um, that our, our emotions happen, but behaviors are our choice. Uh, in other words, we we can't choose our emotions. We can't choose whether we're going to be angry, happy, sad, uh, despondent about a a situation. We can only then uh, find places or choose behaviors that help us process those those emotions. And it sounds as if that's what the uh, hashtag Boston Better project was was aimed uh, to do. Can, I mean, this is this is sort of you know off topic a bit, but uh, how? Well, I tell you what. Before we get, I get you too off topic. Uh, we we're going to come up to our second break, and uh, we will take that break. And when we come back, uh, Rainy, I want to talk more about some of the lessons learned, as well as how how we as a museum community can uh, learn from these experiences and and move on a little bit more. So again, you are listening to Museum Life. This is Carol Bossert. I also want to remind you to uh, take an opportunity to contact Rainy at rainytisdale.com. Uh, reader blog is, is uh, full of very interesting insights. Uh, we will be back in a moment. Uh, you're listening to Museum Life. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com Think of the world 50 years ago. Now think of this same world and how it'll be 50 years from now. Did you know that if the world's population continues to grow at its current rate, our children and grandchildren will only have 25% of the resources per capita that our parents and grandparents had? We must preserve the foundation of a quality standard of living. That foundation starts with Go Green Radio. Join your host, Jill Buck, for Go Green Radio every Friday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America. 
What if there was a radio show that could demonstrate how we can cut your taxes in half without diminishing needed government services? One that could explain how to create tens of millions of jobs at no cost to taxpayers, as well as fantastic yet easily affordable health care. Side effects include cutting crime rates nationwide, providing better education for our children, international peace and harmony, and protecting your private, personal data from government intrusion. Tune in to Libertarians Working for You with Arvind Vora, weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to carol.bossert at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Welcome back. This is Carol Bossert. And today uh, the topic has been Museums as Healers. And Rainey Tisdale has been, uh, is our guest. Uh, she is sharing her, her views and her experiences of being, of taking the lead in the hashtag Boston Better project. So Rainey, right before break, we were talking a little bit about, you know, um, emotions and how this project, uh, handled, uh, emotions in, in the exhibition. But I'm wondering, could you just share with us a little bit about some of the lessons learned that you learned in, uh, doing this project, uh, that are helpful not only for Boston uh, and, and, and your practice, but lessons that uh, others who are listening today uh, can take away. Sure. So, you know, first of all, let's just name two of them that we've already discussed just so we know that they're on the list. One would be this concept of putting emotion front and center in the work that you do. And then another would be this concept of having those discussions and putting some plans in place um, for your community um, before the fact, before your community has to go through something like this. So, you know, check those on the list. And then if, if we go further into stuff we haven't really discussed yet, um, you know, one big one is that, you know, this importance of developing a strong network amongst the cultural institutions in your local community during the easy times before you're really challenged by something like the Boston Marathon bombing. Uh, it was so clear when, you know, when, when uh, Dan and BJ from New England Museum Association and I were going around the city trying to um, get people to participate in this project, the ones who already knew us and knew our work were easy, easy, yes, of course, we'll come along. But the folks who didn't know us already really had, you know, it was extremely hard for those folks to say yes. And, in fact, either never said yes or didn't say yes until there was a clear critical mass with some media coverage behind it. And um, and I think it's, you know, when you're dealing with a really tough, Topic, something like this bombing, where everybody is nervous about it being done well, and it's emotional, and it's hard, um, then it's really those strong 
um, ties, existing ties between colleagues and institutions that see you through. Um, and, you know, I was listening on the radio to um, someone from FEMA um, who had been involved with the, the immediate aftermath of the Boston bombing who said that he walked into the, you know, the command center that afternoon after the bombing and knew every single person in the room and had worked with those people for years in terms of training simulations and things like that. And that's part of why the response was successful, was as successful as it was in Boston, which doesn't mean it was 100% successful, but um, because those existing relationships were there. And so wherever you work in whatever community across the the U.S. or the world, I think I just want to encourage my colleagues to, you know, actually take that time to have a coffee with the folks across town um, because you never know when it's going to become really, really important. Um, to the work that you do. Um, so that's one big lesson learned. Um, and then I think that there is also this really big one about institutional capacity that I've been grappling with a lot in the last year and all of the ways in which um, our field is not structured to respond quickly to an event like this at a time when our communities really need us and how we build the institutional capacity to um, to to take take on these kinds of issues in a more um, you know effective way for our public audiences. That's a big one. <laughs> now, when you talk about institutional capacities, um, I. Um, I mean, we can talk about, well, there's never enough money, there's never enough staff, but I think you, there's more than, you know, I'm, I'm sensing there's, there's more than that when you talk about institutional capacity. Yeah, I think there is, and, you know, we definitely saw that over and over at so many institutions that, um, you know, this thing came out of left field. It wasn't in anybody's work plan. It wasn't in anybody's operating budget. And so, therefore, you know, there were so many institutions that just didn't know, how, couldn't get their heads around how to deal with it, And um, which isn't to say they were all like that. Um, and it also isn't to blame them because I do think the system, you know, the cards are stacked against it. Um, and I, and I should say to the funders, you know, the same thing happening with the funders where it came out of left field. It wasn't in any of our funders, um, you know, priority <laughs> um, priority thrust, strategic thrust that they fund. And so, you know, it was hard for people to get their heads around um, how to support this project with their existing framework, right? And um, and so, for one, that was really interesting. One thing is that I think you know the success of this project really is was you know built on the backs of freelancers, who are in some ways the excess capacity in our field because they are more nimble. And so, you know, certainly for this Dear Boston exhibition, it was a core team of four of us freelancers um, who, um, you know the exhibition couldn't have happened without those folks. And um, so that's a part of it. But um, but I think also it's this kind of thing where, you know, um, maybe there's this need for some conversations about al- alignment and priorities because um, 
you know, when it does come down to, you know, the well-being of your community, and, you know, we are public institutions, we serve our communities, um, that, you know, some of these things we think are so important that are part of our work plans, like, um, you know, I mu- we must get, we must get um, this many, you know, objects cataloged by the end of the year, you know, when it comes down to the difference between the well-being of my community and whether those objects get cataloged or not, I mean, I think that we need to be clear on our priorities and maybe um, make some space for, um, you know, for what, what really is going to make a difference to our communities. Well, I think those. I, no, I think those. Those are excellent points, and I just want to get, want want to get back a little bit when you say you know both both funders and institutions are are the the product of in a way they're the product of their planning. Now, um, I most of the museums that that I work with. I mean, certainly, if I'm on an exhibition de- uh, design team, I might be there for five years if it's a very large exhibition. It it takes five years to put on a major exhibition. Now, you did one in two months. And not to say that it would have been better for all concerned if you'd had a little more time, but the fact is that I, it's almost as if we have skewed our expectations within the field of of the time it takes and the uh, even the thought time it takes to sometimes uh, put on some very compelling uh, exhibitions or programs. Yeah, possibly, possibly. And then also, too, you know, just maybe in general, some, I don't know, this could get us down a rabbit hole, Carol, but, you know, I've been doing some work with, with Trevor Jones at Kentucky Historical Society about... Um, Really, you know, maybe if we're getting to this point now, 21st century, where just the, the, the larger underpinnings of the number of objects we're keeping in our collections and caring for, um, many of those objects for which, you know, we don't know the stories and don't know the meaning, you know, like, like a hand, you know, a, a very small core of amazing, amazing objects at the center of our collections and then a lot of stuff on the edges that we continue to care for. Um, that just really is not that useful to our audiences, um, and you know, and we don't have the stories for them, and and so this idea of you know here here's an analogy, it's like you're, um, you know, you're carrying a 500 pound bag of rocks every day with the work you're doing, and in that 500, you know, that the, your collection and this building you're in represents, you know, is that 500 pound of rocks, a pound bag of rocks. And uh, and so it's hard for you to think about things like, you know, supporting your community, like the, the really amazing, meaningful work you could be doing about empathetic museums, um, you know, deeply supporting your community when they need, need you, responding quickly when you're carrying this 500-pound bag of rocks. And to some extent, museums will always have a bag of rocks that's never going to go away because we are collecting institutions. But um, but have we gotten so, um, you know, bogged down in that bag that we're we've forgotten why we're in it in the first place? 
I think that's that's an interesting. No, I think that's an interesting question and one that probably can also be raised as an institution thinks about its what I would call its empathetic disaster planning. Uh, it, I mean, it's no secret that uh, museums, almost by our very nature and by the people who love working in them, we're we're in it for the long haul. Uh, uh, where there's a part of us that likes that the ship moves slowly. But there are those times where we need to be more nimble. And it's a challenge for us. Right, right. And, you know, and there is a reason we're in it for the long haul. So when I, when I raise these issues, I don't want to just say, you know, we should, we should all get, uh, we should all rent some office space and some, you know, <laughs> some office tower and just leave our collections behind, and then we could do all this amazing work. Then we wouldn't be we wouldn't be museums if we did that. But just maybe we need to look at the big picture again. Right, right. In our time remaining, Rainy, I'd like you to, and I, I know in 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 truth, um, this exhibit just closed. Um, it's been less than two months since you've you know, wrapped this up. So you, too, may not quite have the time you need to have processed all of this. But if you could just share with us what, what was your favorite part and what would you do differently? Um, so those are hard questions for me here uh, because, you know, there has not been any time to process or decompress. We were moving so quickly. Um, but, you know, in terms of do differently, um, it was really difficult for us to get traction in the beginning. And, you know, it almost took to, you know, January, really, when people could see the one-year anniversary coming um, ahead very quickly for it to, you know, really coalesce and get a critical mass going. Um, so, uh, you know, we had some grand plans at the beginning that we had to set aside because we just couldn't get the um, stakeholders and the funding for it. So a big piece of that um, that we had to set aside was audience research. I had really hoped to do some hardcore audience research to understand, you know, uh, whether we were really meeting the needs of our community um, and, you know, doing some um, surveying beforehand about, you know, sort of uh, what it might mean for cultural institutions to serve their community during times of tragedy, um, and then also follow-up interviews with people who participated in all of this programming across the city to find out, was this meaningful for you? Did it, did it make an impact for you? Um, and and I, somebody needs to do that research, and um, so I hope at some point um, there will be, you know, fund. we just couldn't get the funding for it. And also I feel that, you know, it was really hard for us to do the collecting here in Boston because there wasn't an institution who felt th- this was part of their collecting scope. And so the objects from the makeshift memorial, those have been collected. They're in the collection of the Boston City Archives, and so that's great. Um, but the historical artifacts from the bombing itself, so not the commemorative things that were at the memorial, but the historical artifacts from that day uh, never got collected. And so that's something that I really um, wish we had been able to do. Um, I think, you know, 
that's an important part of the historical record that is, you know, is being lost. Rainey, I, I, uh, I realize those were, were hard questions to ask, and I, I think you gave some very good answers. And I, I hope you'll come back on the show in another few few months uh, after you've had a chance to process this a little little bit more. I think there there are many many more lessons that that can be learned. Uh, I really appreciate you being on the show today. Could you remind our listeners uh, where they can listen or read your blog? Sure. So my blog is called City Stories, and you can just go to rainytisdale.com. But then also, um, you know, I encourage everybody to check out the website for this project. So that's just bostonbetter.org. And, you know, it's pretty much archived at this point because, you know, we've done our work for the anniversary. But there's a nice um, listing of all of the events that happened around the city, so you can get a feel for the kinds of things that our partners were uh, were organizing. And yeah, thanks, Rainey. Thank you so very much for being on the show today. This was a a, a great opportunity uh, to see museums at their best and and in action. Uh, you've been listening to uh, Rainey Tisdale. Uh, this is Carol Bossert for the Museum Life. Please uh, check in next week with another great guest. Thanks so much. Thank you for tuning in this week to Museum Life. Please join your host, Carol Bossert, again next Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What museum issue is on your mind? Tell Carol at carol.bossert at verizon.net.